Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we're discussing the machinery of government and the transition into power. If Labour returns to government, how should they navigate it after so many years in opposition? I'm very excited about this topic. And shortly, we'll be joined by Tony Blair's political secretary in 1997, Baroness Sally Morgan, and the CEO of the Institute for Government, Hannah White. So we are recording a few hours after the autumn statement was in the, the House of Commons with Jeremy Hunt and responded to by Rachel Reeves. Uh, so we have the sort of list of announcements and news from there. The biggest announcement, if you like, was um, a 2% cut to the rate of national insurance, sort of average tax cut of about £450 for workers and a couple of quite hefty business tax cuts as well, including something called full expensing, uh, which is essentially a a way of encouraging businesses to invest in new infrastructure and capital and so on, which is something it would be nice if the government did as well from time to time. What's your sort of immediate reflections, Aisha, on the politics of the announcements that we've seen? Well, I thought this felt very much like a kind of real sort of launch pad for an election campaign because Jeremy Hunt did what the Tories had been really kind of craving for a long time, tax cuts and that kind of two pence brought many uh, cheers, 100% expensing. I mean, I, I predicted he would do that. I interviewed him a while ago at the British Chambers of Commerce annual conference and he said he was very, very keen to sort of do that. And of course, the other um, interesting thing is just clarifying that they're going to keep the triple lock. There was a bit of speculation about that. So look, you can make an argument that there was stuff there to sort of give some cheer to Conservatives. You can make an argument, as they will be, that there were some elements of this which were uh, about sort of stimulating growth. But I thought the Rachel Reeves response summed it up. For all of these kind of giveaways now, it does not mask the fact that this Tory government, where it is now, it basically people think of it as being incredibly high tax and incredibly low growth. And even though this sort of goody of the two pence cut, actually, if you look at all the stealth taxes and things like that, people don't feel like they're going to feel like they've had a tax cut because ultimately people feel poorer, their mortgages have gone up, the cost of living is still really squeezed. So I think he's done as good a job as as he can to sort of spin something out of this, but it's not going to change the weather, I don't think. Yes, I think that's right. I don't think it will make a huge difference to the sort of polling or anything. I think the the tricky thing for Labour is that essentially what they've done is 20 billion quid of tax cuts, 
that is paid for by £20 billion of public spending cuts. And it's sort of all a bit technical and hidden. These spending cuts are essentially as a result of inflation rather than him standing up and saying, I'm cutting health, I'm cutting education. But it has the same effect in the end. And the Office of Budget Responsibility in their report have said, essentially, in the sort of official, polite way that they do, we don't believe this is actually going to happen. So we don't believe our own forecast. We have to say this because those are the rules, but we don't believe our own forecast. So... Rachel Reeves is probably going to come in as chancellor in a situation where she doesn't want to say before the election that she's not going to do these tax cuts. I think she always wants to do full expensing. It's quite hard to oppose a national insurance cut. But at the same time, these are paid for out of pretend money. So she is going to have to find a way to reverse at least some of this unless the economy improves dramatically over the next year. And that's going to put her in a, in a sort of nasty position. So it's a, it's a bit of, there's clearly a lot of election campaigning in this. There's also, it does feel a little bit like salting the earth and making it incredibly difficult for her coming in as chancellor for her first budget, because it's not actually fiscally responsibility to do tax cuts now, but it's also hard to oppose. Yeah, and that's very much been the theme of the many conversations we've had throughout this Mm. podcast, which is just the sort of depressing reality. You know, what she will inherit is going to be very, very difficult. I think the other thing which is really important is that, you know, this freeze headroom is really misleading because it does make people think, oh my goodness, the economy is actually doing a lot better than people Mm. thought it was. It isn't. The economy is still in a really... It's actually in a worse, but I mean, the growth forecast has been downgraded a lot since March. You know, all that's happened is there's been a lot of inflation, which means the amount of tax we're bringing in has, has increased, but also public services are struggling more because they haven't had the money to deal with that inflation. So it, it, it is just an effective spending cut. It's not, it's not, he's not getting this money from growth. So the headroom is, is really a, a frustrating fiction. And it's one I feel like political journalists struggle to explain. It is quite technical and difficult to explain. You sort of almost feel like they're getting away with it a lot of time Definitely. because it's so techy. And even as somebody who doesn't really understand <laughs> economics, I'm a bit, I'm actually not going to slag off Boris Johnson for <laughs> not understanding graphs because I'm absolutely... See, for me, that's like... A, <laughs> I'm like with Boris on this thing. one. Well, you know, kind of, um, we all joked about, you know, the best joke was fattening the curve. <laughs> that was like the extent of our sort of thing. But you're absolutely right. But the one thing that I did think Rachel Reeves did do quite well in her speech, and, and we've, we saw it in the run-up to the autumn statement, we saw Liz Kendall talking about this, was making this big sort of link between the health of the economy with the health of the nation. And I think that is quite a good framing argument. You know, Rachel Reeves is saying, look, you know, we've got to get more of these people to work, but how can you have a, a healthy economy if you don't have a healthy society? Then you pivot into, you know, this is what we're going to do for the health service. Now, there is a big argument about, well, how do you do that and where's the money coming for the health service? But I think it's quite a good argument to couple the sort of public services and health with the health of the economy. I do think that's a good argument. No, I, I agree. And I think you could take it a lot further than she did, actually. I mean, the Chancellor did this sort of full expensing policy so that companies will invest more in capital, in buildings and infrastructure and equipment, because that's really important for productivity, which is correct. And at the same time, he's frozen public spending on capital. So that's a big effective cut in public capital spending. So the NHS can't buy equipment and can't build more beds. And then he's saying, well, we want public sector productivity to go up. Well, it can't. Your own thing that you're saying that the private sector should do, you're not allowing the public sector to do. So I think there's lots of ways in which you can say, actually, there's a real confused message from the Conservatives. And they're not understanding that what they are arguing for from the private sector also needs to happen in the public sector. And they need to go hand in hand because you know it's all one economy. And if you don't have a functioning public sector, you're not going to have a functioning private sector either. Mm. I did sort of think, though, Jeremy Hunt, for the first time, I feel like he's looked quite depressed for a long time. And his Tory party, he got like five minutes at Tory party <laughs> conference with sort of no announcements. I did feel that he, he looked like he had a, a little bit more of, of a spring in his step. However, I think the big question that many people are looking out for as well is, will he be the Chancellor mm. come the next general election? This is something Rachel Reeves said in her response. Now, she was very careful, I noticed, in her response. She normally always says, and I can't wait to be the first ever female mm. Chancellor in this country. She always, always says that. She didn't this time. Mm. And that's because there's lots of rumours swirling around that Sunak kind of rather spitefully wants to kind of blunt her mm. being the first and put in Claire Coutinho in the, the run-up to the general election. Um, 
I think that's just something to look out for. I, 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 that you're right. Those rumours have been going around. I think it would be an astonishingly petty thing to do. That would not be helpful. I think Hunt, Hunt should be there to the election. But it's interesting. The one that, the interesting thing about Hunt is, it's inc- is though he's quite respect. We've talked about this before. He's quite respected in Westminster. He is actually the most unpopular politician in the country. You know, his polling is appalling. There's a real disconnect between the sort of view of him here and the view of him amongst the public. Which, but I think. I, I, and you can see why, because there's nothing remotely sort of exciting. Mm. It's a very sort of anemic politician. However, I do think a lot of the business community have got quite a lot of time for him. I think yeah. he is seen I mean, in the business community him, yeah. as somebody who has really stabilised things after the madness of Liz Yes, they'd rather have him than Quartet. Yeah. You know, and he's a good communicator with the business community. He's quite calm. You know, he's quite sort of reassuring. Mm. They will really like this expensing stuff. This is something oh, that yeah. they have asked about. But in a way, he doesn't need to be popular with the public because he's probably going to lose his seat at the next election. I think he might stand down. He may stand down. He's probably got a glittering career on many, many boards ahead of him. He's already incredibly rich. Yeah, exactly. exactly, And we won't worry about Jeremy Hunt's future. Yes, let's not get too (laughs) anxious about that. So in today's episode, we are talking about transition into government. We're allowed to talk about this. I'm pleased. We don't have to do the whole we can't be complacent thing again. Uh, And what Labour need to be thinking about over the course of the next year. We have some great guests to talk about it. Do you have anything before we get into that that you're sort of keen to get out of today's episode? I'm really keen to understand just the, not just the sort of policy stuff, but the kind of psychological transition that you have to make when you've been a smaller opposition party and then when you come into government and it is just everything is is different. How you do business is different. You have to deal with all these new people in, in the civil service. You have to deal with new levels of bureaucracy and decision making. I think that's what I'm quite interested in. Yeah, no, and, and having experienced it myself in 2010, going from sitting by myself in Port Carlos House, tapping away at my computer on policies to sort of being in this huge department with 8,000 people. It is a very, very strange shift and one that if you haven't been through it, you're never going to be able to quite prepare properly for it. So we'll we'll, we'll get a sense you know, from Sally particularly, who has also been through it in a much more senior role than I was, how you can prepare yourself as much as possible for that jump. We start by talking to Hannah White, who is the CEO of the Institute for Government. She joins us down the line. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Now, Hannah, you've been doing you know a lot of thinking at the Institute for Government about how parties transition from opposition into government. Tell us sort of some of the nuts and bolts that a party has to think about. That's right. Well, we do think about this because the Institute for Government's sort of aim is to make government as effective as possible at all times. And one of the things that we think is very important is that if a new government is elected, that they can sort of hit the ground running as quickly as possible. And if they're going to be able to do that and to be effective as quickly as possible, then there are a number of things they need to do. Now, we we all know that there are these things called access talks, which are the sort of formal pre-election contact which happens between the civil service and the opposition. That is something which is very important. Not People, I think, think about it quite a lot from the point of view of the opposition communicating to the civil service what their policy priorities might be. But actually, I think it's at least as important to start to build some personal relationships between the most senior civil servants and front benches of the opposition should they get into power so that they sort of know who it is who will be greeting them when they turn up in their new department after the election. But alongside that, there's lots of other forms of preparation that oppositions would be wise to undertake if they think they have a realistic chance of getting into government. And that's about sort of agreeing, discussing their policy priorities in some detail, working out what sort of legislation they might want to put forward in their first uh, King's speech. Are there any major machinery of government changes they want to put in place, any sort of departments they want to destroy or create and, and how they want to shift things around? It's also really important to think about personnel decisions, which sort of advisors they want, who they want in key positions. Then there is a sort of process of prioritisation of all this that needs to happen from the leader's office because you know there's a lot of work that can be done by individual teams. 
but the leader of the opposition's office is really key in pulling it all together. Now, Hannah, you've detailed a lot of work there and people might be thinking, oh, well, there's an army of people within the Labour Party thinking all of this through. That's not the case, is there? Because actually most shadow teams only have a small number of people. There's a lot of thinking to do. How does an opposition party do that effectively when it is quite thin in terms of numbers? Well, that's a really good point. Obviously, we have a system in this country where we give our opposition parties what we call short money, which is supposed to sort of fund their operations so that they can be effective in opposition. But there is a, a lot more work, which, as you say, needs to be done ahead of an election, which isn't just a sort of how to operate in the House of Commons and the, and the staff you need for that. And the difficulty I think we have, and it's the same for any opposition, is that it's a bit chicken and egg in terms of the resource you have in the run-up to an election and the work you want to do. Because if you think there's a realistic chance of you getting in, then people might start to sort of give you funding, which might enable you to create posts to help you develop policy and, and do your thinking. But until you start to look like an effective party, which you know might have policies which people might sort of want to vote for, then that money won't come in to fund those posts and those people won't exist. So it's very sort of circular. And so it is important to realise that actually, I think for the Labour Party, it's only been you know relatively recently in this electoral cycle that they've looked quite frankly, you know, like it's possible that they might win the next election. So the money that's needed by them beyond short money to fund the posts internally that they need to do this work has only started to come in the last year or so, which means that with an election likely to happen in the next year, has to happen in the next year, there's quite a lot of work to be done in quite a, a short space of time. And that also affects the sort of type of people that are willing to come in and when they come in, right? Because there wasn't an expectation that Labour would win until relatively recently. And so that's meant that perhaps some of the people you'd want to be doing some of this thinking were willing to work for the party. They not now might be, but that's a very quick turnaround. So it's not just in terms of sort of the money and raising the money. It's also finding the right personnel, finding places for them, allocating the work. So there's a sort of, they're trying to do, I think, what um, New Labour did in sort of three or four years in the space of a year, and that's pretty difficult to do. I wanted to ask you about one of the things on your list of things that they need to be thinking about, the machinery of government and how the state works. One of the things that's come out of the COVID inquiry, you know, we've seen a lot about how Boris Johnson didn't know, you know how numbers works and so on, none of which is very surprising to those of us who've met him. But the sort of perhaps more important long-term aspect of it is that the centre of government putting the politicians and advisors aside didn't seem to work very well. And I know you're doing a piece of work at the Institute on the Centre of Government. How radical do you think Labour should be thinking about how that, when I talk about the Centre, I mean Number 10, the Cabinet Office, maybe the Treasury as well. How radically should they be thinking about how that bit of government works? So this is a question which is crucial to any government coming into power. And I think the real thing, we've been running, as you say, what we call a, a commission on the centre of government and thinking really deeply with a, a group of commissioners and lots of witnesses from different walks of life, including government, trying to think about the, how the centre of government could work better. And I think one of the crucial lessons that we've identified, which is, again, not rocket science, is that the centre of government risks just not being sufficiently strategic. It's too much driven by the day-to-day -day events, by the news cycle. And actually, inevitably then, because of the way the institutions work at the centre, the Prime Minister spends a lot of their time sort of dealing with that day-to-day -day stuff which isn't necessarily driving their priorities forward. What does drive priorities too often at the centre is just decisions about money. So what we have is spending reviews, decisions about how government is going to spend money, which are driven by the very effective machine of the Treasury determining the priorities of government rather than it being the other way around. So a lot of the thinking we're doing in this commission is how you can make sure that what happens in, at the centre of government is a really strong process of priority setting, which then feeds into a spending review rather than a prime minister almost ending up sort of having to go cap in hand to their chancellor all the time to say, well, I've got this priority I'd, you know, I'd really quite like you to fund. And the chancellor essentially can say it was just not the money for that. So it's about trying to make the centre, give more capacity to the centre to be more strategic and to drive its priorities rather than it 
just being the money that has to drive that. It was quite interesting to see Francis Maud's report last week. I don't usually use Francis Maud and interesting in the same sentence, but it was quite a, a surprising report from him. He was asked by the government to do a report on sort of a lot of some of these questions of machinery of government and the civil service. One of his recommendations was that the Treasury's sort of spending function should be moved into number 10, essentially, which is something that Tony Blair considered, other prime ministers have considered in the past, for precisely the reasons you're talking about, that sort of need to prioritise. The government immediately rejected that suggestion despite it being a review they'd commissioned. But is it something that Labour should do, should consider? So I think Francis Maud had got, to be fair to the government, way outside the remit he'd been set in starting <laughs> to talk about things like splitting up the Treasury. And so it's sort of unsurprising that the government wasn't keen at this point in its electoral cycle also to contemplate that idea. I think it is a really important question that lots of people raise about the enormous power of the Treasury in our system. And if you look at lots of other countries internationally, they don't have this single entity that we have of a Treasury where you combine the economics role and the sort of finance ministry a sort of accounting role. And the risk being that the spending side of the Treasury, and this is a, a fault that people often identify, ends up making decisions on the, in the short term, which aren't necessarily good for the economy in the long term, just to s- sort of simplify it massively. I mean, we think that is a problem. We share a lot of Francis Maud's analysis of the problem. But I think in a pragmatic sense, splitting up the Treasury at the start of your you know, first term of government, it would be a major undertaking. And we think that you can do quite a lot to rebalance the system without going as far as Francis Maud proposes. And so we think there's more you should think about doing to strengthen the economic capability of number 10. We're thinking about a sort of more of a sort of department of the prime minister and cabinet sitting at the centre with a strengthened economic capability rather than hiving off the whole of the spending apparatus, which is what Francis Maud proposes. Mm. And the other thing, Hannah, that I'm interested in, I mean, just from my own past experience, I was a a civil servant before I became a special advisor in government and then, of course, went into opposition politics. And one of the things that I think is really important for any incoming government to think about, you know, particularly with this Labour Party, there's not that many people that have had experience of government. There's only a few people. I think Yvette Cooper and Ed Miliband are really sort of the only people who kind of attended cabinet meetings. I mean, in the past, of course, you have Sue Gray there now as well. I mean, currently, the Labour Party in opposition is pretty fleet of foot. Like, if it wants to get a message out, if it wants to make up a policy, it can kind of do what it wants. Obviously, Rachel Reeves the big sort of kind of obstacle at the moment because she's been very, very tough about spending. But one of the things that they need to prepare themselves for if they win is when you come into government, there is a whole kind of architecture of bureaucracy and protocol and orthodoxy. You can't just WhatsApp a, a spad mate and go, right, we're just going to you know cook this up in the pub later on. It has to go through the, the red box. Submissions have to be written and submitted. There's a way of kind of doing government. How do you think you prepare an incoming Labour Party for just that level of of bureaucracy? I think that's absolutely right, Aisha. And and I think the thing that goes along with that is that you go from a situation where, you know, you're really spending quite a lot of time with your shadow cabinet colleagues and seeing each other quite regularly to a situation where actually you're out in your departments and you're quite isolated. And so you have to then rely on these sort of bureaucratic processes. Obviously, you still have your weekly cabinet meetings and so on. But the sense of sort of camaraderie and collective endeavour is sort of slightly harder to sustain. So I think it is, as you say, when an opposition party has been out of power for a prolonged period, so the people who might come in as ministers are relatively few and far between, there's a really important job behind the scenes you know, within the party to try to explain to people how it works, to understand the processes, also to understand how government has changed since the party was last in power, because there's almost a, a danger for the people who were in last time to assume that it will be much the same as before. And actually, it's hard to overstate how much the state has changed since Labour were last in power in, the, in this instance. So I think it is a really important thing to think about. We at the Institute have always, ahead of any planned election, done work with the official opposition, which we call preparation for government work, where we do talk to the opposition about you know how government works and, and how it's changed and what the situation is. 
because, as I said right at the start, it's part of our mandate is to try to make government effective. And should the opposition party become the government, it's in everyone's interests for them to understand as much about this as possible. I wanted to ask uh, about the civil service itself. The government has, well, at least parts of this government have fallen out noisily with the civil service. We've seen a sort of increase in rows between sort of senior mandarins and, and, and ministers and people getting fired and so on. Equally, part of that is due to the fact that there is, I think, fair frustration about the lack of change and, and improvement in the quality of the civil service ability to provide adequate information over the decades. How does Labour rebuild that relationship with the civil service without, in a sense, dropping the need for, for some change in how it operates? I think it's a really good question. And I think it's important to recognise that the civil service itself will be thinking about the potential for a transition. And there will be a fair degree of apprehension, I think, about working with potentially a whole new set of ministers and understanding a whole different set of priorities and so on. So there will be a lot of thinking going on in the civil service about how to prepare and what Labour might be thinking should they get in, into power. I think from Labour's point of view, there's a risk if you just sort of think, well, you know, the civil service hasn't been getting on very well with the Conservative Party and so everything's bound to be better if we come in because we'll just be a change. I think it is important to actually reflect on what that change needs to look like. And I think to combine the sort of two parts of your question, Sam, the, the time when the civil service is most effective is when it's given clear direction. And so I think, as you say, there has been frustration about whether the civil service has reformed and has got the skills and the capabilities needed to deliver what modern government needs. And there's definitely a question for Labour about how they choose, if they get into power, to drive civil service reform from the centre. And we, of course, at the Institute of Government would argue that that is, is really, really important and only happens if there's really strong political sponsorship for it. But I think across departments, it's really important for Secretaries of State to be really clear with the civil service about their priorities, what the things are they're trying to achieve. And, you know, there's no priority. If you've got 15 priorities, that doesn't really work. It's got to be really clear what the things are that are highest priority for you to deliver. And then to ask the question, does my department have the capability to deliver on these things? And if it doesn't, then that's what you need to address. And Hannah, look, a final question to put to you, going to loop back to something you mentioned at the beginning, which many of our listeners will have heard about, but I think it would be quite useful if you could just maybe explain exactly how these access talks work and what do they sort of entail and how much time do opposition ministers, shadow teams get to spend with civil servants and, and which are the types of civil servants that they get to meet? Yeah, so access talks are something that, again, happen ahead of a planned election. And in the past, ahead of the elections in 1997 and 2010, where we had changes of government, the access talks started about 16 months out from the polling day. So we would expect access talks to start relatively soon, given that timetable and the fact we, we need to have an election next year. We're already sort of within that window. This is about shadow front benches getting access to the most senior civil servants. And it's, as I said at the start, an opportunity really to build relationships normally between shadow secretaries of state and permanent secretaries. People often sort of think that it's all about sort of saying what your policies are going to be and getting the civil service to sort of develop a mindset and think about how those policies might be delivered. But as I say, I think it's more important that it, it's really genuinely relationship building. How much time they get is really dependent on the people involved. Sometimes it's, you know, it's just one or two meetings. There have been examples in the past where, you know, the permanent secretary and the shadow have really hit it off and they've been meeting multiple times a week in the run up to an election. So once the sort of go button is pressed and the opposition have requested the access talk start and that's been granted by the prime minister, which is necessary because in normal times the civil service wouldn't be expected to have this sort of contact with the opposition. Once the go button is pressed, it's really up to those individuals to shape what they think is most useful for them. 
Well, it's going to be a fascinating period of time. I think when those access talks begin, that's really going to be quite a big moment for uh, political watchers. Um, Hannah, really fascinating conversation. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Hannah. Thank you. Listening to that was Baroness Sally Morgan, who was Tony Blair's political secretary in 1997. Hello, Sally. Hello. I wanted to ask you about the similarities and differences, I guess, to your experiences of transition in 1997. You were working with Tony Blair before the election. You experienced that kind of preparation for government. Do you think you were further ahead than Labour are now? Or we, are we sort of, do we look back with rose-tinted spectacles? I mean, I think to an extent, inevitably, you look back with rose-tinted spectacles. And I, I mean, I suppose where, where I possibly slightly disagree with what Hannah said is I do think you have to campaign until the very last mm-hmm. vote is in. And I think anybody who thinks, oh, we can stop now and we can prepare for government is very foolish. So I think, I think you've got to be very organised because in a sense you've got to recognise you're running a campaign right through... You've also got to plan the election period and how you get through that department by department or priority by priority. You've then got to decide what's going to be in your first King's speech, but also what your priorities are for government. And so in a sense, you've got phases and you've got to have a short term work where, you know, first hundred days or first session and then look beyond. So I think you've got to be highly organised, but I don't think you can stop campaigning. Was there a split between people who were doing the campaigning and people thinking about this stuff? Or was it sort of you were all doing a bit of both up until the last minute? I think most of us were doing both, really. I mean, I, I was obviously largely, particularly in the first term, politics in the broader sense, if you like, and in opposition. And, and I was very strongly linked with the party. So I suppose... Even dealing with party relations, you end up with a much larger team in government than you have in opposition. So Mm. that changes. But I think we were all involved in those stages, actually. Mm. So I think, you know, one of the conversations I have with colleagues who are now sort of around the, the current front bench is to think hard about the intensity of the campaign period. You've got to have, I mean, you shall remember, you've got to have a lot of stories. You've got to have a lot to get you through an election campaign. Mm. And in a sense, you've almost got to deal with that, the manifesto and the election campaign as a package. But you've then also quietly, really, got to be preparing hard for government. So you, you have got to segment yourself. And do you remember the access talks? When did your access talks start? I don't remember the access talks at all. You weren't involved in that bit? I certainly wasn't involved. I mean, I yeah. was obviously, I mean, we were a relatively small team. I think Jonathan was heavily involved. Um, Jonathan Powell. Jonathan who Powell, was sorry, he was chief of staff. Yeah. So Jonathan was chief of staff, obviously had a civil service background. If I'm completely honest, I think one can overplay all of this. I know everybody now is talking about everybody's got to be trained and everybody's got to be ready. An awful lot of this is about leadership and relationships. Mm. Um, You can set up whatever structures you want, but actually you've got to be really clear what your priorities are as a government. And all the colleagues have got to be, broadly speaking, brought into that. And I'm afraid that means that some things aren't priorities. And one of the hardest things in government, which is different in some ways than opposition, is saying that probably at least half the departments don't really matter very much in mm. comparison. You, you, you've got to mm. focus. You've got to decide what is it we really care about and, and focus on it. And Sally, just take us back to 1997. What was it like moving from being in opposition campaigning really, really, really hard. There was that real excitement in the Mm, run up to mm. 1997. Then election night and then you all go in as a team to number 10. Just, just... It is the most weird. I mean, it's, it is a surreal, even though it's a long, long time ago. I can remember it so clearly. I think I hadn't been asleep anyway. And you arrive, you walk through that door. I'd never been through the door. I'd never been in number 10. You walk through the door, you're shown where your office is, and that's it, you're in. And of course, the first thing we had to do was form a government. And I do remember, I mean, it's very different now, but one of our very early conversations with senior civil servants was explaining that all our teams were going to have women on them. And that was quite a shock. And that was, cons- <laughs> I mean, now, you know, in a way that now, thankfully, across any party, that would not mm. be a surprise. But there was quite a lot of, oh, my goodness, sort of, we really are talking a different language. Was there a sense or, or sort of a fear almost that because the Tories had been in power for such a long time, as they again yeah, have yeah. been this time, that the civil service had been sort of almost house trained into their way of thinking? Because there was a big increase in special advisors when you came in, you would bring in a lot more of your own people. Was that sort of a deliberate sense of we need to break from a, a certain mentality. I mean, we actually, I think we had relatively few special advisors. There's loads more now than, than Yeah, but it's, than it's we, gone up again since. It's gone up dramatically, it, Sam. It, it, I mean, my, there, there I not mean that we, many we still had major. two in most departments. Mm. I mean, only two. I mean, it was pathetically small in some mm. ways. Look, my take, actually, again, it's a bit different than Hannah's. I think the civil service get really bored 
So I think they are delighted at the prospect of a new government, as they were in 97. And I suspect they probably were in 2010. You know, let's mm. be, you know, this is not a party political view of the world in many ways. They get bored. Well, and also governments get tired, right? Governments get tired, it. civil service get tired. But I do think the civil service are more demoralised than I've ever known them. So mm. I, I think they also are ready for a change in attitude and relationships. And to the point that we brought up with Hannah as well about just the change when you're a kind of small, lean opposition yeah. team, you know, you're real comrades in arms, you can do business very, very quickly because you're like a family yeah. really in opposition. Just talk us through the culture change and the psychology change of when you get into government and suddenly you're broken up from each other, you're put into these big departments, quite often you become quite adversarial in terms of the fighting to get policies agreed. Talk us through the mindset change. I mean, I think that's really significant. I mean, I, I don't think in a way I experienced it because obviously in number 10, you are still quite a large team. And I think we felt very clearly we were a team that was civil service and special advisors. And sometimes we just had political meetings and that was fine. It was clear what we were doing. But in a sense, I think it's much harder in departments than it is in number 10, actually, because the proportion of special advisors is so small in comparison to the larger team. And then inevitably, there is the danger that you become of the department. Everybody becomes of the department. You become a creature. You become a creature. I mean, I think one of the things that I really hope an incoming government does differently, frankly, whatever incoming government is, they think, what are our priorities? And to what extent does this need cross-departmental working? Mm. That we measure ourselves against that rather than measure ourselves against this is what our department is delivering. And I think back, one of the relatively few times I really saw that working was Sure Start, actually. Mm. And it was really interesting I think one of the reasons that that was different was that it was largely women ministers. And so we used to get people together at lunchtime, the women ministers, they were largely ministers of state, came in, we had our lunch together. I was a sort of senior woman advisor in number 10, I guess. We collectively wanted to deliver Sure Start. They literally came with red folders from their perm sex and, you know, oh, this is, belongs to health, this belongs to education, this belongs to the Treasury. Mm. And we said, actually, to hell with this. We want to deliver it. And we've got to somehow find a way of replicating that style See, of that working. See, that is so, so important because I think by the time I came into government as a special advisor and I was doing women and equality mm. issues, we were taking the equality bill through Parliament, I would say that it was a bit more blokey at that point and things were a bit more siloed. And I remember as the sort of lowly women's spad and there weren't that many female special advisors, it was such a battle going up against, you know, other spads and other departments, Harriet Harman kind of begging, battling her way again with lots of other sort of male begging the business department, please, can we do something on, on gender pay? It was interesting hearing Rachel Reeves today talking about equal pay day. You know, obviously she wants to be the first female chancellor. She's committed to doing stuff. But it did feel like you were kind of battling on an individual basis against the might of other departments. So I think you're right. I think if a signal is sent from the top, from Keir Starmer or Rachel Reeves, right, we are going to make, let's say, closing the gender pay gap a priority, then it's not just on the shoulders of the Minister for Women or the Special Advisor for Women. It's something which has to become a government like priority to deliver. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's certainly the case that cross-government stuff is incredibly hard to do and it really needs Number 10 to yeah. be involved because yeah. if the Prime Minister isn't, or at least the Prime Minister's advisors aren't mm. driving it, it mm. there's just no one else in the system mm. that's going to make it happen. Mm. No, so. and even just delivery. I mean, I you know, mm. if I think back to the period of... Having gone through the first term, realising we weren't pushing as fast as we wanted to, the beginning of the Mm. delivery unit, that was, in a sense, again, a small meeting with key individuals that it was civil service. I wanted to come on to that actually a bit, so how number 10 works. And it's a very odd place, very right? Odd. Like, mm-hmm. there's a great line from Jonathan Powell where he says that simply allocating the offices in Number Ten was harder than negotiating the Northern Ireland Peace mm-hmm. Agreement. Mm-hmm. It's like there was because there's just not very much space oh. and very few offices near the Prime Minister. Mine was um, next to the loo, which was brilliant. Well, that's the key office, right? Absolute, isn't it? Lots that's of, you brilliant. go through memoirs brilliant. of people who've worked in Number Ten. That's the my office. office. Next that was to the my loo, office because you can see everybody coming. Absolutely, in. grab um, them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that one's particularly sought after. You've got a good one. I've got a good one. But it is weird that we're running like the centre of government out of this old Georgian building. Yeah. Yeah. I know Jonathan Powell, again, thought about moving you all to the mm. QE2 centre and you're mm. having a proper centre of government. Mm. Was it just not seen as a priority? It was just not realistic? I think we did think about it. I think we also thought more modestly, perhaps, about sort of Admiralty House at that point. And, mm. you know, lot. And, and look, I'm one of Hannah's commissioners on her mm. centre of government thing. And, 
one of the things I think we are talking about is the Prime Minister's office and the Cabinet office in some way coming together in a much more meaningful way. So presumably that would at least be knocking down the door between them. Uh, with, with the, the door with, with the, the pass, key. With the, well, or I had to now pass. it's passed now. It's passed now. There's I a think. whole episode of yes. yes, Prime Minister oh, yes. about the key. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's his, two, it's his complete reason. Look, it's a crazy building and people, of course, can hide away and do not, you know, I mean, they can be on the yeah. top floor and you don't really see them very much and it's all fine, really. Mm. They, it, you know. I mean, I remember when I worked there and I was so excited mm. to join. I was working in the political office with Gordon Brown. I was so excited to come in and so excited to get your... I was like, I'm working at Dining Street. And then you go in and it is quite a strange atmosphere mm. in there. You can actually feel quite isolated as well because there aren't these big meeting rooms and it is like an old house, right? So mm. you're kind of often sort of kept away in these rooms. It doesn't foster a great kind of sense of team just because of the layout of the you building. you think it's sort of the, the president and the Oval Office and all that. There isn't even an actual Prime Minister's office. Like they choose a room to work in. They all choose different rooms. But there's no actual office. It's bizarre. But just going back to delivery, from what both of you are are saying, and I think I've probably got some sympathy with this, one of the criticisms that you feel when you're a spad working in a department Mm. is that you have the centre hanging over you all the time. I mean, the thick of it is based on that, right? You know, a lot of the kind of analysis of why politics has gone wrong has been too much control from the Mm. centre. Having said that... If you want to actually execute good delivery, you do actually need not an aggressive centre, but you need quite a big active centre, which is helping ministers and special advisors and senior civil servants in other departments. How do you think you get the balance right, Sally, of not kind of infantilising departments, but sort of the centre being supportive? I mean, I think, again, it is to an extent back to people. So... When I look back and I think, where did it really work? It worked really well if you had a Secretary of State and a Minister of State and their special advisers and the relevant special advisers in number 10 working really closely together and trusting each other and basically knowing they were all trying to mutually deliver the same agenda. As soon as that isn't the position, you're into trouble. And frustrations build up and then the centre micromanages far too much. We tried to do too much and we micromanaged too much. I'm completely clear about that. I think we were fortunate when we, and it was slightly out of sort of exasperation, sort of moved towards having a delivery unit. The personality of Michael Barber again, Mm. so it's back to people, back to how they behave. The personality was such that he was able to build support for what he was doing, I think, to a large extent in the department. He was able to manage Gordon Brown, basically. Um, Well, (laughs) to some degree. (laughs) should be better at she she can comment on that. I I remember dealing with things like, particularly health and education, actually. And I don't think people felt threatened by him. I think they recognised what he was trying to do and he was trying to help them yes. move things forward and indeed in the end help them set up their own approach to delivery. And, and that's But it didn't happen everywhere. So you've, you've mentioned that this delivery unit, which was very important to uh, your government's ability to make stuff happen and Michael Barber sort of leading mm. that. Tell us a bit more about how it actually worked. What was its mm. sort of function within the, the wider I mean, it, it was set up really to make sure that we really move things forward on the core public services. So education, health, transport, but I would say particular education and health in a sense, home office asylum and things like that. We slightly did it in a different way, albeit with a very sort of intensive approach, but short term. It was a process where Michael pulled a group of people together, quite a lot of them outside from outside the civil service, but some civil servants as well. And in my experience, it was the first time, certainly when I was there, that we'd really decided hard what our targets were going to be and what our measurements were going to be. So it was the first time we really had indicators of progress. Around the edges of that, it enabled us to look to try and bring people together from the front line, if you like. So the most entrepreneurial people running hospitals were brought together to help inform what those delivery targets should be. So Mm. instead of it just being kind of the centre saying, we want X, Y and Z, it was what would it take for you to be able to really move the dial on something? And so we were hearing from the front line. So they would come in and have sessions as well. So you choose a theme, but try and push the organisations forward. The key thing, I think, was a month, I think it was monthly, but a meeting with Prime Minister, Cabinet Secretary, PermSec, and usually, I think, one other senior civil servant, Secretary of State, Minister of State, and the special advisors from Number 10 and from the departments. So it was, it was small. Michael would do a presentation. This is where we're up to. 
And so then you dive in. And Tony, in a sense, prepared for it as if he was taking a case in court, I suppose. So he had a pretty long and intensive preparation period. So he was he was leading the, the it's sessions. It's kind of remarkable that no subsequent prime minister has done that. I mean, there have been some yeah. things called delivery units, but yeah. nothing that actually yeah. resembled that. Yeah. No one's ever been able to recreate no. it. So when we look at Keir Starmer's team, and it looks like they are an incoming mm. team into government, mm. of course, there's a long way to go, and yeah. Sam and I also have yeah, these yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. debates, but it does look like they are kind of coming into government. We've got a very different situation now to 1997. There is an expectation of change. I'll be honest, doesn't feel like there's that much hope uh, at the moment, particularly because of the financial climate. What would your advice be to Keir Starmer's incoming team about how to sort of navigate that? Because you guys can came in, there was a lot ahead of you, but there was a lot of hope. Yeah. What would your advice be to, I suppose, the internal oh, yeah. party management as well, particularly yep. doing that job as you did as political oh. secretary? Because I would argue whoever is the political secretary is going to have one of the toughest mm. jobs mm. because you're going to have to manage the ministerial team, mm. but you're also going to have to manage potentially some quite unhappy backbenchers yep. that come in as well. And probably right from the start, a very hostile media, although that's more the comm side, yep. but even Labour backbenchers and people across the Labour movement, leaders of the trade union movement, maybe some of the mayors already sort of expressing disappointment from like day one. Yeah. I, look, I think it's party liaison rather, more than party management is my view. I mean, I, I always took the view that you had to build whether it was about the party or the movement or indeed much wider, you had to build circles of support. So you start, you know, make sure you've got a group who you are, you can be really, really open with, including saying how tough things are, both within number 10 but outside. I mean, we always had a group of ministers who were really, really closely connected. And even if I think through some of the difficult times in public service reform, we do suppers with groups of people. So in a sense, you just, you could just say how tough it was and you could go through things together. But I think control of the diary, I keep saying, I mean, you know, I can remember I, I sort of, particularly in the second time, actually, it's sort of a diary, a morning meeting that's looking at the day, the week, the month, three months, six months, you've got to have proper control of the diary. The and, grid. Yeah, but also just, the, just even just the diary. Time with the party in the broadest sense was absolutely sacrosanct in Tony's diary right through the whole time he was prime minister. So time with the party meeting every week, you know, an hour with the PPS where effectively give the PPS, his MP in, in parliament, the space to bring in whoever needs to be brought in, whether that's a group of, you know, marginal seats or whether it's fishing ports or whether it's somebody who's very unhappy about X or a hospital closing. The prime minister has got to still be the leader of the party and as they are his flock in a sense. There's an interesting point here about the job of being prime minister, which already by the time you were there had grown a lot from where it had been sort of in the decades before, but since has grown, I think, even more, which makes it so hard to manage the diary in that way. I know, you know, Tony Blair had, he always wrote this memo on Sunday evening, have a meeting on Monday morning. Yeah, there was a kind of rhythm to it. Yes. that I think it's actually someone like Rishi Sunak is really struggling to do just because there are so many summits. There's this massive expansion mm. of, sort of global summit I mean, and prob- all sorts of other things as well. I think well, that's that probably true, but to be honest, Sam, I think there's always loads of stuff. And in the end... You have to just be ruthless about it. Well, you've also got to delegate. Mm. So, I mean, certainly my experience of working with Tony was, I mean, I remember I negotiated civil partnerships without actually discussing that we were doing civil part. I mean, I sort of then said, oh, by the way, because actually I was so clear what we were trying to do in broad terms as a government, that that I think there was a fair amount of delegation for people to get on with things, which meant that the leader then has got to support those people, even if he's not completely... And we've seen some prime ministers who are very bad at delegating. And I think if you haven't got delegation, it's not going to work. And that means having a very good team of, obviously, your cabinet and ministers, but really good team of of senior advisers who you can have that comfort and the confidence knowing that you can leave them to do things. Sally, I just want to move on to sort of another um, topic. And we touched on this when we interviewed Tim Allen Mm -hmm. about media operations and this is not so much a media operation but it is a something that the whole party is is going to have to face yeah. at the moment the party is brilliant at forensically attacking the government on on loads of different things everything the government does is is pretty much wrong and bad and da 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 da, da. but that whole thing is going to shift when there is a change of government, if mm. there's a change of government, where suddenly you're responsible for all of this stuff that, that's going wrong, that literally sort of a month ago you were saying, you know, was going to hell in a, in a handcart. How do you psychologically, again, make that sort of shift where you have to go from 
attack mode which is quite easy into sort of defence mode hyper defence mode well again I think part of that is providing a level of reassurance and explanation constant explanation to people about why things are happening and sometimes just saying I know it's really tough and I We'd like to do that too, but actually we can't for the following reasons. So I do think you've got to build a network of people whom you can trust to, in a sense, interpret what's happening all the time. If you haven't got that, you're in real trouble. But I do think one of the issues is party members probably are a whole group of people as well that I think... In my time, I don't think we really did very much about it. I, I mean, one of my pieces of advice to people going in now would be to say, think about the fact you have got a direct communication with party members. Use it. Don't just assume it's going to go th- just through the MPs. So you've got to build a different approach. I think. And when you're navigating all of this stuff, the good stuff, but let's be honest, the really difficult yeah, yeah. stuff that's coming yeah. down the track, what do you think worked best when you look back on your time? Carrot or stick? kind of shouting at people, briefing against people or trying to bring people with you. How do you strike the right balance? Because, you know, there are going to be very difficult moments for kids. Yep. I mean, we've just had a taste yep. of that with this Israel-Hamas uh, ceasefire decision and, and, you know, he's had to sort of get rid of some people, or probably with a heavy heart, but he still mm. had to do mm. it. How does the party kind of deal with the sort of discipline issues? How tough should they be? I mean, I think you've got to not have a one-size-fits-all approach. So I think if somebody really goes way outside or does something that's completely unacceptable, there's no question they've got to go. And I do think collective responsibility in the end, in government, collective responsibility is sacrosanct, otherwise you can't function. What you shouldn't do, though, with a lot of people is kind of question their integrity. I mean, I went through Iraq and I think one of the things that sort of got us through was Tony Const having endless, 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 endless meetings with MPs and with the whole parliamentary party, but never having a go at them and never questioning them. So saying, please understand where I'm coming from and I do understand where you're coming from. So trying to set that dialogue up and then making sure there are people who sort of assist all the time with that dialogue. I think that's crucial. So yes, sometimes stick, but I'm I'm not so much a carrot person. I am a bring into the tent person, I suppose. Mm. What do you think the the most difficult party management issues are going to be for them? Your first big rebellion was on benefits and benefits for single mums. And that was quite soon, even when... I, we I, remember that. <laughs> Sally and I just looked at each other and we were just like, ah! This, David Miliband's mum was chained up to the railings outside, actually, I think. From what the I most remember. amazing thing about oh. that is that it was December 97. It was, yeah. it was when Tony Blair was the most popular politician yeah, yeah. in British history yeah. at that point. And there was still a big Labour Party yeah, rebellion. Course. Keir Starmer is going to be a lot less popular when he comes in than yep. that. So you sort of feel like it's quite likely to come quite yep. quickly. Yep. What do you think the issues will be? I think they will be about disappointment about spending. Mm. I mean, I can remember our early budgets. Gordon was brilliant at it, obviously, and sort of set stuff out. And actually, the truth is it wasn't coming for quite a while, but happily he managed to persuade people it was coming. But they're not really going to be able to persuade people there's a lot coming. So it'll be disappointment. I mean, Mm. the trouble is expectation, hope. People's lives are pretty rubbish. So the expectations Mm. will be really high. So, look, if anybody can do it, Rachel can. She's really being honest with people. But it is going to be really, really tough. And look, I suppose... If it does happen, Mm. and I'm sure it will, it's going to be such a a huge moment for the country. Mm. It's going to be a huge moment for all the people who are around Keir Starmer and particularly the people who who go into number 10. What is your advice for people going into number 10? Because I think what people don't appreciate is these jobs, these high-level government jobs, when they're done properly, and they should be done properly because it's an incredible honour to serve in number 10, it's a 24-7 operation. I mean, it is so all-consuming. It's so exhilarating, but complete. you cannot yeah. do or think about anything yeah. else. It is your whole life. You kind of eat, sleep, breathe it. What's your advice for, for people? I think make sure that you don't do 24 hours a day. Because I think if you end up with a team like that, they're very divorced from reality. So, look, I think it's much harder for people now. I mean, we didn't have social media, for heaven's sake. Um, So I think it is much, much harder. I had young children. I mean, I went to the school playground once a week, unless there was an invasion happening, um, pretty well throughout. And I actually thought that was as important as other things, because you heard things. And I think diversity it's an overused word, but genuinely having diversity in the team is extremely important. So people who sometimes are, you know, watching their kids play football or are 
going to the local gym or whatever it is, is really important because it's the best focus group. You know, I mean, you can be fed all the stuff you want, but actually you pick something up and you think, oh, I don't like the sound of that. It's also just incredibly unhealthy being, crazy. being stuck in number 10 all well, the time, never just, going But you out. lose your contact with what people... Mm. Re- you're too dependent on the media and you're too dependent on the headlines and the people that, the only people that you're talking to. Yeah. And actually, you've got to get outside. And it kind of breeds paranoia totally. as well, doesn't it? You kind of start seeing sort of yeah, shadows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why social media really does, yeah. I think, make everything again. You know, yeah, yeah. It's not just you didn't have social media. BBC only launched a news website in 1997. Yeah, it was a completely, completely. different age no, in completely. terms of media. Completely. And that has, I think, made all Proper of this breaks much harder. Also, you know, I think you've got to, the, the thing where you have to learn to swallow hard is yes people are going to have holidays mm. and we did get sometimes rather annoyed by where Tony went on holiday but everybody well, the senior team included have got we used to breathe a sigh of relief actually and just think right we, we're all off now even if it always made a news story every time yeah, it was just one of the things you had to get through yeah. we used to watch the weather and phone each other and say oh no it's starting to rain who's going to phone first <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's sometimes as an advisor when you're kind of yeah. minister goes on holiday. You can't actually... Yeah. You know, could you go somewhere there's no phone yes, signal? Exactly. That would actually be exactly. quite good. Exactly. Well, Sally, it's been such a fascinating conversation. So many brilliant stories and insights. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Lovely to see you. Thank you. I thought that was such a fascinating discussion. It was great to have Hannah and Sally. I think my big takeaway from Sally Morgan particularly who was a brilliant political secretary to Tony Blair and actually did a fantastic job of party management at a very very difficult moment for Labour I think there's a real truth in what she said that you can do a lot of planning you can do a lot of theory you can do a lot of organograms and things like that but actually so much of it does come down to the real flesh and blood relationships and investing time in those and having a good team around the leader who understand how to prioritise all the necessary people in the kind of great kaleidoscope Mm. that is the Labour Party. I mean, I think that's true. And it is notable that Blair's number 10 was just far more effective than any that have come since, despite not actually having that different a structure to those that have come subsequently. Other people have set up delivery units, they've set up policy units and so on, but they just haven't had anywhere near the same impact, which argues to the point that it really is ultimately about the people and he just had a much more effective team around him and he was better at setting priorities than people who came after him. But I also do think there is a sort of... Should we be in a place where it is so difficult to do that you need to have a group of unbelievably stellar political superstars in order to make it operate? You know, people like Jonathan Powell, Alistair Campbell, Sally Morgan, to make it work. Should we not have a system that is a little bit stronger and less reliant totally on the individuals, although you know, always it's going to matter? I think the individuals are everything. Look, there is a lot you can and do in terms of structures, but so much of, I think success in politics is about the individuals, it's about the chemistry that people have, it's how they manage people, it's also how hard they work. We've seen I mean I think one of the most instructive things about the, the COVID inquiry is actually just gives you a glimpse into how a lot of governments are run, which is really chaotically yeah. and with a lot of bad blood and not a lot of sense of team. And when you think of Tony Blair's team it wasn't, you know, just the big household names that we know about, the, the ones that you um, listed. There were loads of other amazing people around Tony Blair whose names are not in the headlights. Mm. They've never been household names or sort of political stars, but they were absolutely brilliant at what they did. They got on with people. They were pretty tough people, but they did their jobs brilliant. The other thing that Tony's team, I think, was quite unique about is that they weren't all at each other's throats. Mm. They all were quite confident in their own right. They all inhabited their own sphere of influence and what they were good at and they all gelled together as a team. They weren't sort of constantly trying to undermine each other. And I think it's sort of a point, like, we don't actually really know who's going to be in, in Starmer's number 10, which is quite unusual. I think in 2009, we had a pretty good sense by this point of who was going to be in Cameron's number 10. But, you know, Sue Gray, we know, would be chief of staff. But beyond that, it's not 
clear who's going to be in the sort of senior, like the political secretary, who's going to be head of policy, you know, policy unit, which is the role David Miliband did for Blair, who's going to be director of communications. It's sort of interesting to see whether they'll use some of the people that are in the team at the moment or whether they'll sort of look for a bit more ballast as, as they get closer to the election. I also think the other thing that Keir Starmer will have to his advantage is that he has, and this is again quite rare in politics, he's had real life experience of running a big organisation mm. before, you know, he was a good leader of the crime prosecution service. You know, mm. people I know who worked there said he was, you know, a calm leader. He was quite a thorough leader. He ran a sort of good team. So I think one of that's another big, big weakness in our political system. You have people parachuted into positions of great power, huge responsibility, and they've never actually done anything any running of a functional team before they've got like no management mm. experience. And he would he would also be the most senior civil servant to ever become prime minister, which will also be interesting. And it's a sort of unusual civil service role, director of public prosecutions. He would have experienced being sort of within that wider system. So he has a bit of a sense of how it works. And of course, Sue Gray was very senior in the civil service for a long time. So you get a sense that they will at least have, even though there's not much political experience in terms of having been in cabinet and so on, there is a fairly good sense of how the machine works because they have seen it from different perspectives. Which fits into their sort of meta message of stability and, and trying to sort yeah. of calm things down. Well, look, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you're not a member, you can subscribe to our Substack for ad-free episodes released a day early. And if you get any thoughts or questions, you can tweet at The Paratest or you can email us at pod at theparatest.co.uk. And we'll be back next week in conversation with Aisha's old boss, Ed Miliband, live from the Inclusive. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Growth Conference at London's Royal Society. We'll also be hearing from Theresa May and Vince Cable's former advisor Giles Wilkes and Charlotte Aldrich from the Centre for Progressive Policy. We will see you then. 